Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Tonight I'm going to speak about the preoccupied mind. I'm going to speak about those times in our lives when we experience a hyperfixation and times when we are, uh, in in fact, really hamstrung by uh, thoughts that become too dominant uh, within our own headspace, where things and ideas and concepts and people and friends and enemies and spouses and children and all the clamor of all the voices uh, live in our skulls rent-free. And, uh, and I, I want to speak about it, especially in light of this passage from St. Luke's Gospel. But before I go there, I have a, a friend who's a, a, a now kind of a famous author who wrote something about one day in their life as it relates to the clamor uh, that they ritualistically experience on a daily basis. And so, uh, pardon the brief excursus, but it's not really an excursus. And I'm going to read you an excerpt uh, from A Day in the Life. And so this is a fairly high-power person who's living in, a, in, a, in an urban area. And, and they're writing in the second person as if they're describing everybody's experience. This is what they write. You wake up. You instinctively, right away, before anything else, check your iPhone to see if something's happened overnight, something in the world. And believe it or not, it has. People are upset. The veracity of the news reports are uncertain, and it's certainly too soon for context, but it's not too soon for everybody to be angry about it and to require from you a well-defined opinion. You you then shower as a distraction. You get dressed and prepped for the day. Work emails flood your inbox. Some are automatic, written uh, by uh, by artificial intelligence. Others are written by early risers. You move these emails into a folder entitled Deal With This Today, which now has 35 unread emails from the last month. Same with a litany of texts that you receive that require your immediate attention or else the texters won't stop texting. Your phone buzzes with a notification from an app reminding you to work out today. A news app tells you more about last night's newsworthy drama. Your buzzing tablet is then reminding you that Facebook is reminding you that you have friends who have birthdays. You get notices about your car insurance and it's due soon, and then your credit card expires next month, and some email wants you to know about that. And you only have a week left to review the hotel that you stayed at. You work on your way to work. While you drive, you take calls and send a text to book your long-delayed dentist's appointment, and you feel guilty that you still use an old-fashioned non-electric toothbrush. When you're at work, you don't feel guilty about using work time for personal email because there's no real distinction between work time and your time anymore, at least not during the week. Those two times are are parasitically intertwined. That weird pain in your intestines comes back after you eat lunch. 
you know better than to try and diagnose it online, but you try anyhow. Maybe you have indigestion, maybe you have cancer. Cancer, though, isn't a death sentence anymore, or at least it's very case-by-case, case, or there's really no such thing as cancer. There's only millions of individual aberrant cells, and you might be their next victim. Hard to tell, but you'll try to tell at some point today. In order to stave off cancer and ill health, you have to try to eat the right kind of food for lunch, but it is very unclear what the right kind of food is anymore. But it probably has to do with quinoa, but you're unsure about how to pronounce the word quinoa. The right sort of diet is more unclear with each passing day. After you work, you obey your fitness app, which reminds you to work out. You work out, at least half the workout, and then listen to podcasts about the American obsession with podcasts. Then you drive to see your friends and check your email again. You learn about protests in Berkeley, civil war in the Middle East, Supreme Court battles, so much happening so fast. It feels like someone jammed a heavy thumb on the world's fast forward button. Your friends seem uncertain about their jobs, their homes, their family, and their future. A few seem to have too many possibilities to choose from, which makes them neurotic and nervous. You wish you were them, they wish they were you. As you head home, the pain in your gut is back. You want to watch something good in order to distract yourself, but between Netflix and YouTube and Amazon Prime and Peacock and HBO Max, you are overwhelmed by the choices, so you end up watching a Marvel movie instead, even though you've already seen it. It's reassuring, though, clarifying, because there are heroes and villains, right and wrong, and a lot of capes. Then you go to bed, you put your phone down, try to sleep, give up, and pick your phone up again, as you do every night. Then you see it. Something wrong has happened in the world that requires your attention. There it is. I'm wondering, as I read that, if you can relate to some of those impulses. I'm wondering, too, if you experienced a rise in your blood pressure. Uh, and I'm wondering, too, if you can relate to frenetic Mary, or Martha, rather, in this passage. Uh, because I think that what Jesus offers in this brief dinner conversation is a shift in perception that actually can bring a lot of uh, healing to our lives, and that shift is from the many to the one, from the many to the one. This is what Jesus said to his devoted hosts, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Now Martha, of course, represents the many, and Mary represents singularity, but I want to speak about both this evening. Uh, so Martha, in representing the many, uh, is, is, this is evidenced by Jesus saying, you were anxious and troubled about, for many things, but uh, I, I think it's worthy of, of us to have some sympathy for Martha. Uh, she was, after all, the hostess within a culture that had a great, um, a great many expectations for how a dinner was to be run, because uh, within a Jewish household within the first century, though this is likewise true in many Jewish households today and not just Jewish households, was that a meal was more than a meal. When you invited people over into your home, you were sending all sorts of signals about your bonds with that person and your hopes to attach yourself to their reputation, to their goodness. Uh, a meal was considered in some way the mortar of friendship. In fact, dining rooms were called, at least in Jesus' day, the, the mikdash mayat, or a miniature sanctuary, uh, the miniature sanctuary, the temple of your home, in which sacred things, sacred parties would meet. 
And so dinner back then was uh, extremely intricate in terms of the ceremonials involved, in terms of the liturgy of the dinner. The only thing that I've come close to experiencing in terms of this, uh, in terms of this uh, liturgy was on the uh, European tour that Monique and I just went to. Uh, we were on a very big ship on the Danube, and we were served seven-course meals every night of the week. Um, we all bear our crosses. It was a struggle, but I made it through. Um, and, and, but you, I did not know that, that every meal had to have five forks. I did not know about order. I didn't know you work your way in. I didn't know why you needed um, like sorbet as a fifth uh, is a fifth course. It seems very silly to me. Nevertheless, I learned, I learned a lot about the intricate nature of fine dining. Um, and, and, but it was even more ceremonial and more liturgical then. It involved all sorts of care, not just in presentation of food, but in preparation of food. Because within a Jewish household, you had to make sure not only that the foods that you were serving and then consuming were clean, you had to make sure, at least within many circles, that the vessels in which you were serving the food were completely clean, so that your guests wouldn't be defiled by your own dinner. Uh, and so there was a religious sense of what was being consumed, and not, not only a religious sense, but artistry in what was being presented, hospitable greetings, formal presentations of the guests, and so forth. And so a meal within a home was filled with sacred rituals. And we, we read a little bit about that in our passage, because in verse 38, Martha is actively welcoming Jesus into the house, and there was actually a ceremony for that. And then later in verse 40, uh, Martha was wearied through much serving. Likely there were multiple courses in this meal that required her attention. And then in verse 41, she has a bit of a meltdown. And anybody here who's been serving food for a lot of guests, you understand what it is to have a meltdown if you feel too much pressure What's very interesting is that um, most summers, Monique and I host the Manja Fest, which is this massive Italian thing uh, in which we serve a lot of Italian food to a lot of people. But the three days prior to that meal with all the prep that's involved in it, all, our whole family has kind of a collective nervous breakdown, right? Uh, because there's just so many details and so many things to pay attention to. Uh, and, and here, Martha loses it a bit and says, uh, with a somewhat disrespectful tone, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Now, a, a psychoanalyst would call this triangulization, right, where he, she, she's trying to get Jesus on her side to prove that Mary is in the wrong. Um, but I, I want to simply note, as, a, uh, as a, a caution to judging Martha too harshly, that her anxiety isn't due to some sort of obvious sin. You know, she's not robbing banks or polluting lakes at this point in her life. She's trying to do the right thing, and she's trying to manage a lot of right things all at one time. She's really trying to be helpful, and she's trying to show public deference and respect to this hallowed guest. She's trying desperately, desperately to give the best of her in this situation. Um, what's, what's fascinating, though, uh, is, is that uh, Jesus points out um, that, uh, that he didn't really ask for any of these things. He does that, um, he does that rather subtly as he addresses the situation. Um, because verse 40 says that Martha was distracted, distracted with much serving. Much serving there is uh, diaconia, which is where we get the word deacon, for much deaconing. She was trying hard to be a servant, uh, like a slave to Jesus and all the people there. 
Um, but Jesus never asked Martha to do these things. Jesus didn't, at least in this passage, not that we know of, request a seven-course dinner with cocktails afterward. Um, I want us to see just for a second that Martha in this passage is doing what Martha wanted to do, not necessarily what Jesus wanted her to do. And sometimes in life with our much serving, we get bitter and resentful and exhausted, not because we've listened to the heartbeat of Christ or the directives of Christ, but because we're doing what we think is expected of us, and we get in over our heads, and then we get fried and angry. And maybe that's what's happening to her. Um, but I wonder right now in this place if we can totally relate to this woman. Whether we're a homemaker or not, whether we cook things or not, can't you understand the manyness of Martha, the burden of manyness, where all these expectations and necessities and customs weigh down on us, right? Where Don't you feel like you have to care about too many things? I feel like I have to care about too many things all the time. And especially if you're in like a public position and you happen to be a minister, whatever that's worth, like you're supposed to have opinions about a lot of things and have them like all the, the problems solved, at least in your own skull. And so when people ask you what, you're, what you think about things, you're supposed to be able to you know, elucidate something thoughtful. But, uh, but I find that I'm burdened by that. Maybe you're burdened by similar things. Or, you know, there's all these voices in your head. You know, there's, um, in the 80s, it was talk radio, though that's still a thing. Um, and maybe it's workmates. Maybe it's the rumors of your workplace. Maybe it's a romantic entanglement. Maybe it's the fact that you have a lack of money. But there are all these pressures on you and you feel totally burdened by them because you're really trying to do due diligence in all these areas, but truth be told, you don't know how many more weeks you can do this. Um, I, wonder, I, I wonder why why we involve ourselves in manyness, in distractions, in not perceiving the main thing because we have too much mental clutter, uh, too much uh, occupation, too much preoccupation. I think we get lost in the details of life and develop fixations for a variety of reasons, and here are just a few of them. I think sometimes busyness, manyness, uh, we engage in it because we're trying to prove something. I really, I think that's part of it. I think we're trying to prove something, right? We're trying to say to the world, look at all the responsibility I can handle and handle proficiently. And if you notice it, maybe you'll think I'm legitimate too. And if I see that you give me approval, then I'll feel better about myself. But you're proving something with, with your manyness, with your management. For other people, it's to distract from something. You involve yourself in manyness because it's a distraction, because it's easier to get lost in the mental or menial tasks than face the actual reservoirs of pain in our own lives. You can distract yourself from your heartache for decades. You really can. It's actually not terribly hard but then nothing changes, nothing gets better, nothing gets healed. For other people, they involve themselves, themselves in manyness because they're trying to prevent something. They're trying to prevent something. Maybe they were abused in the past and now they're trying to uh, build a million safeguards and manage a, you know, a, a million walls so that they never get hurt again. Or maybe they were hurt, but they don't want their kids to be hurt. And so they're trying to manage the world in such a way that prevents any damage from ever affecting their children. They're trying to prevent something. And lastly, maybe we engage in manyness and distraction and fixations because of a view of, well, we could call it false omnipotence. That's God's nature, that he's all-powerful. 
Um, I, don't, I think really, in the end, for many people, it's just a lack of trust that God is God, and that God, in the end, has to cede his control and the outcomes of our situations to us. And so we overmanage, somehow believing that God will not do what God has promised to do. And so we take upon that, that the burden of his mantle. But for whatever reason, why we engage in the manyness and the overwhelming distractions of life, why we ignore the one main thing and focus on the other things, that's the Martha impulse. And I think everybody in this room, to some degree or another, can easily relate to it. And then, of course, there's a contrast with Mary, right? Mary uh, represents a singularity of focus. Uh, Notice she's very still. The passage says that she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. She sat there and, and adoringly took in the data. Now, um, what is she doing? Some commentators say that she's sort of romantically interested. She's, she's, uh, she's sitting at Jesus trying to admire him so that she'll be noticed. Uh, I don't think that's right at all. I don't think this is starry-eyed adoration. I think instead, sitting at the feet of a rabbi is a well-known way, at least within Judaism, to express that you're in a, you're in a learning position. You're, you're sitting at the feet of a great teacher to glean from that great teacher. This is why in Acts chapter 22, as Paul was r- recounting his educational life, he said that I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. If you know who that is, he was like the PhD supervisor of the first century, probably the smartest man in the world, right? So Paul is gleaning from him, but how does he express that? He sat at the feet of this great teacher. And so Mary, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus in this situation, and that is quite an unusual thing to see. Why do I say it was, it's unusual? Because in the Mishnah, the Mishnah is, is oral tradition within Judaism that was eventually written down, some of it in Jesus' day, much of it later. It says this about rabbis and our respect for them and who they're supposed to be speaking to. Let your house be a meeting place or a miniature sanctuary for rabbis and sit amidst the dust of their feet and drink in their words with thirst. So sit at their feet and learn from them. But then there's a, there's a little holdover bit at the end. But may the rabbi not speak with a woman. Right? It's not like, by the way, that Mary didn't understand first century dinner customs. I'm sure she prepared many a meal for many a guest. And it's not like she didn't know about cultural expectations for men and women and how they would engage with a rabbi. But Mary overrides Midrash. Mary overrides Midrash and convention in order to glean from her Christ because she thought to herself, I'm guessing at least, how many more times is something like this ever going to happen? And I could, I could make the bow tie pasta. I could. I, yeah. I could. I could prepare the beef wellington or the first century equivalent. I, I mean, I've done it before. I could do it again. But I don't know how many more times I'm going to experience this. So best to live in this moment and glean as much as I can from this moment and from this wise man and from everything that he has to say because it could really shape my life for the long haul. And he matters more. He matters more than the dinner party. He matters more than which fork you're going to use. He matters more than the third course. He matters more than sorbet. I have to listen to him because this is going to give me something that I can take with me for the long haul. Uh, And so that's what she does. 
That's what she does. She takes it in. And Jesus is so impacted by her focus uh, that he responds to blustering Martha with these words, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Um, Now, notice Jesus' descriptors for what's occurring with Mary. The one thing, the necessary thing, the good thing, and it will not be taken away. Meaning, this meal that we're all having together, it's really terrific, but it's not going to last forever. It meets a temporary need, and it's it's temporarily helpful, even enjoyable, but it's not going to last the long haul. Um, Mary is more interested in the social di- than, than what's being offered in the social dynamics of this meal or in the food itself. Um, Jesus, by the way, uh, says something similar in uh, John's gospel. Whenever the woman at the well, you remember the story? Like, she's going in the heat of the day to get the water. Jesus meets her at the well and says, if you knew who was speaking with you, you would understand that I've come to give you living water. Uh, She eventually comes to a place of faith. She's very excited and goes and tells the other Samaritans in the village about Jesus, and the disciples are shocked that he's speaking with a woman in public. Same kind of thing as our passage. But more than that, more than that, Jesus says to them um, that I have just received food that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus sees the real food, the real substance of life, as connected to God and not just ceremony. And so um, Jesus is is indicating in this passage as he addresses Martha that, yes, it's a good thing that Mary takes the posture of a disciple. And I think there might be even an implicit invitation to blustering Martha. You know, you could do this too. It's for you too. You don't have to work yourself to death all the time to impress anybody, but you could sit and you could learn too. Um, So that's the manyness of Martha, and that's the singularity of Mary, who understood the meaning of the moment. And of course, she cared about other things, but this was the most important thing, the most important person in the room. Now, how do I land this plane for us? Well, there's been lots of applications to this, uh, of this text to, to people, and I want to now give you two terrible ones so you don't have to believe them anymore, okay? Here it is. Here's the first uh, terrible application of this passage. You should become type B instead of being type A. Don't be type A. Type A people are evil. Type B people are good, right? <laughs> right? You need to get a personality transplant. Don't, you know, don't mind the small stuff. You'll be all right. It'll all work out. Um, Yeah, not really. Uh, This passage isn't really about being type A or type B. It's about focus. Uh, It's about focus. You know, and by the way, being type A is not all bad. Do you remember, um, like, type A people get things done. They create uh, um, agendas for meetings so that you don't spend three hours at a meeting. God bless type A people. But more than that, Jesus likes them because do you remember the parable of the talents? Yeah, three people. And the two first people invested their talent. You know, they were bankers. They worked on Wall Street, and it worked out for them. And then the third one, who was really type B, what did he do? He buried it in the dirt, and then he got in trouble. So I'm just saying, type A people are awesome too. And so are type B people in their own way. But this passage is not about that. Um, See, wasn't that nice? I just blessed all of you with that wisdom. Um, But more than that, um, uh, some people say, well, the real application of this text is that you just need to live more simply. You should. 
Give up some stuff and then you'll be happier, like Mary. Give up some activities. You have, if, if fewer things means less stress. So you should only enroll your children in one sport and not three. Or you should buy a simple house, right? Sell your home that you have now with three bathrooms and buy a simple house that you can hitch onto a truck and then you can sleep in your kitchen. I guess that's good. Um, or maybe you should take a sledgehammer to your iPhone. Maybe, maybe you should. Um, and, uh, but, but, you know, but that sounds great until you realize that much of the stress in life has to do with people, not your stuff, and you can't take a sledgehammer to them legally. So, like, you can't get rid of everything that causes you stress. And, and, and by the way, the, the, the scriptures are pretty clear that, like, work and dealing with humans is part of life, and you ought not to excise it from your experience. And so, like, you can't get rid of everything and make your life totally simple. I, I don't think those are those accurately reflect an honest and helpful application of this passage. So let me now try to show you what I think really is the message. The cure for our freneticness, the, the cure for our manyness, the cure for our distractions, our fixations, the cure for feeling too strongly about things that don't require that kind of strong opinion, right? The cure is this, is, is not avoiding many things, because we all have responsibilities, but in being great by the main thing in such a way that we are no longer emotionally occupied in the same way. We need to be more fixated, not less, but more fixated on the one thing, not the many things. Because if you're more fixated on the main things, all of the main thing, all of the other little things lose some of their barking kennel-like quality. Jesus taught this on the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. He said, look, you're good. lots of people are worried about their clothes. Lots of people are worried about diet. But what I'm telling you is seek first something else. Seek first, you know it, yeah? The kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. Like, it isn't that God has no concern for your well-being and for Beef Wellington and the fourth course of sorbet. It's that those things are not the main thing. Hospitality, customs, they all have their place, Right? But instead, if you have the main thing, which is the, the Christ who redeems us through sacrificial love, that tends to give perspective and legitimate weight to everything else. The singularity of the Christ uh, who is at the very center. So let me tell you a little story. Some of you know the story. I, I told it from the pulpit like seven years ago, so I think a repeat performance is fine. Um, it, it, was, it happened to me. It was very powerful. And uh, it actually happened in Ireland uh, on the Irish coast. Monique and I spent three weeks there on my sabbatical in 2016, and it was a beautiful experience, and we were staying at this place called Muckras, which is a small village in Northern Ireland where they still speak Gaelic, almost always. And uh, I, I experienced, for a variety of reasons that I still to this day don't understand, all sorts of anxiety about coming home, about church, about life, about family, and, uh, and what's worse is I couldn't distract myself because it was in the middle of nowhere and they don't have internet. Like, really. Like, in, in the northern part of Ireland, they just, they haven't discovered that, you know, you could Google things. So, that, so nobody has internet and there's no TV and there's no phone lines. So you're stuck there with your family, which is wonderful, by the way. It's all good all the time. But, I mean, but, you know, you can't get away. 
and it rains, so you can't walk very, very easily anywhere. So I, I'm there in Ireland, completely melting down, which is great. And then uh, I, I decided, based on the, the, my wife's wisdom, but also the wisdom of a, a friend who, with whom we were staying, there was a beautiful mountain right beside our little bungalow. And I had the idea that I should probably take a long walk on one nice day that we had. And I walked all the way to the top of the mountain. And there, at the top of the mountain, I really cried out to the Lord. And I said, I don't understand why why I'm like this. Why do I freak out? Why do I get so upset? Why am I fixated? What's wrong with me? I need to understand something. I don't want to live this way, you know, getting hijacked all the time. Maybe you know what that's like. I mean, it's miserable. And, uh, and I'll tell you, as soon as I asked, um, asked the Lord, what do I need to see from you? It was like white lightning right away. No breaks. R- white lightning. It was uh, Psalm 24, the beginning of Psalm 24, which is, the earth is the Lord's and all that is therein. Maybe you know that verse. But I thought that that was just my brain. And like that was some, because it's sort of a cliched verse in some ways. You find it on those Christian calendars they send you in the mail for free, like under a picture of daffodils. And I'm like, that's really nice, but I want something better. That's what I said to God. I was very humble. Um, Can I have something better? The earth is the Lord's and all that is therein. But it was so incessant. It was so incessant that I couldn't shake it. And then I realized the wisdom in what I was given. And here's the wisdom in what I was given. Um... So because of my own personal history, and we, heaven knows we all have complexities in those, my anxiety is principally caused because I'm trying to prevent further damage and pain in my own life. So I'm overmanaging to make sure everything is okay all the time, which, by the way, is not a recipe for success. But in my overmanagement, here's what I forgot. In being a minister, here's what I forgot. In being a dad and a husband, here's what I forgot. The earth is the Lord's and all that is therein. This church is not Ethan's. This world is not Ethan's. My family, actually, is not mine. Everything belongs to a supreme sovereign who is more just than me, honest than me, and more compassionate than me. And that I, too, belonged to that same Lord who loves me tightly, loves all of us tightly, doesn't let us go. Isn't the parent who abandons children that are complicated? And then I realized on that mountain, since everything is the Lord's, if my pastorate succeeds or fails, whatever that means, it'll be fine. If this church grows or dissolves, it'll be all right, because everything, you and me, we all belong to the Lord. Fear the earth is the Lord's and all that is therein. And that gave me a soulish relief that stays with me to this day. Stays with me to this day. I still have anxious days. You still have anxious days. But it gave me a singularity of focus. That was Christ's word to me. And I'm sure he has a a word for you that would bring you relief as well. And so, just in closing, the, the Christian goal, friends, is not to have a zoned out mind and heart that is totally empty of all concerns but to have a more singular and life-giving preoccupation, to be grasped by the one needful thing that puts everything else in its right place with its right weight. And that's why we're here today. We're here to sit at the feet of Jesus, kneel at the feet of Jesus, hear from Jesus, sing to Jesus, and experience the, the new life that Christ has for all of us. Or to quote the 
the hymn that so many of us know, the old pietist hymn, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. They took your life, they could not take your